and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we're talking about the shows we're looking forward to this fall. Plus, Matt zoller Sites sits down with Ava DuVernay to discuss co-creating her first TV show, Queen Sugar. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt zoller Sites. Hey, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hi, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. Hi, Jen. Hey. So, fall TV is creeping up on us. And, you know, based on the screeners I've seen, I feel like it's shaping up to be a pretty good season of television. I don't know if you guys agree, but compared to last fall, I feel like I've seen more stuff that has piqued my interest. I do, actually. I have a, a running list on a whiteboard over my desk of um, shows that I think might end up on my top 10 list and episodes that might mm-hmm. end up on my best episodes list, and I'm running out of whiteboard. Wow. And we're, wow. And we're you know, now we're nine months into the year, but it, it, things keep coming on TV, that I, and I see them, and I think, oh, here's another contender. Yeah. It's harder to it's choose. It's field. a really good year. It's a really good year for scripted TV. It really is. Yeah, I mean, I'm still making my way through the fall shows, uh, but I feel like I am definitely seeing more that I'm liking and admiring than than not. Um, in fact, so far, I've only seen uh, one show that I thought was bad. Um, what, what show might that be, Jen? Well, it'll shock you. <laughs> Kevin can wait. Oh. <laughs> I watched the first episode of that last night, and... Um, we can talk about it more later, but uh, it was... Oh, man. It was not good. It was not good. Shocking. Shocking. Yeah, I know. It is surprising. <laughs> um, before we get into specific shows, I thought we could talk about some trends that we're maybe noticing. It, there, I feel like there have been a lot of comedies. HBO, in particular, has... Well, they're premiering five shows this fall, which is seems like a lot for the network in one season. Three of them are comedies, Insecure, Divorce, and High Maintenance. And one of them is Westworld, which is kind of their next big play. Right. I think they're hoping that's going to be the next Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. Which I haven't seen. I've seen the first two episodes of it. Do you think it's going to be their next Game of Thrones? I don't know if I'm like embargoed or what, but it's it's handsomely produced, um, really, really violent, and it left me a little bit cold. And I think it's supposed to, like it, like mm-hmm. the tone is, is, uh, very similar to, um, that movie Ex Machina. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. like it's not a warm, cuddly kind of show and, uh, I'm not convinced that it's trying to be. I question whether or not it can be another Game of Thrones because Game of Thrones is as kind of cruel and violent as that show can be. It always has characters that you can relate to and embrace and, mm-hmm. and Westworld not so much. And this uh, is based on... This a is Michael Crichton on, film? Yeah, my, Michael Crichton's 1973 film, uh, which is set in an amusement park, uh, like a Wild West amusement park where you can do battle with robots and have sex with robot prostitutes and, I guess, you know, live out your fantasies of the Old West or something like that. And, of course, you know, things go wrong. It's it, it, it's funny because it's kind of the same movie as Jurassic Park, which is also based on a Mike, <laughs> which is based on a Michael Crichton novel. <laughs> That's funny. But with dinosaurs instead of uh audio animatronic cowboys. Yeah. Um but uh it's 
It's funny to see this because it's so, I feel like we've come full circle because Westworld was this movie that was a huge hit and I don't think anybody really expected it to be as big as it was. And Yul Brynner played the renegade gunman robot and he was kind of parodying his part from The Magnificent Seven. And then all these movies came along that were basically kind of a similar plot, including The Terminator, the end of which is basically a ripoff of Westworld. People who've seen Westworld know that. Um, and now here we are, and it's a you know it's a massive one season at least prestige production, supposedly one of the most expensive productions in the history of HBO, and uh, it's just you know it's a brave new world we're in, I guess. Yeah. Did you like the original film? I did, yeah, and and but it's another case where I think that um, remakes. I often I often find that remakes. Um, the number one thing that a remake tries to do is to up the production values, you know, mm-hmm. and and sometimes that's a mistake. And I think they do it really, really well here. Like it is, a, it does feel like a fully inhabited world that you can sort of live in. Um, but I also miss the chintziness of the original Westworld. Yul Brynner's character gets part of his face blasted off and you can tell that it's just they stuck some like sprue from a model, you know, onto his face, you know. <laughs> it's like there's something to be said for that that kind of low-tech approach. And it seems like... You know, HBO isn't alone. Amazon is also premiering two comedies this this fall, one Mississippi and Fleabag. TBS has two coming a little later in November, Search Party and People of Earth that we can talk about later, but I really liked both of them. And NBC seems like it's trying to get back into the comedy game with The Good Place, which is starring Kristen Bell, and it's a Mike Shore uh, show. If it weren't for the pedigree on that, I, if it weren't for the pedigree on that, I would definitely be skeptical of it. Yeah, I watched the pilot and I actually liked it. I, was, I did too. Yeah, I, I really liked it a lot. Actually, um, it's always hard to judge a show, any of these shows, really, from one or two episodes, of course. But and especially a show like that, where I felt like a lot of that pilot was building this world of what our understanding of heaven is and what it's going to be. And so it's it's hard to know like how sustainable the premise is because the idea is that Kristen Bell has is not a very nice person and she's accidentally ended up in heaven because she has the same name as somebody who actually belongs there. Uh, but I thought that I thought the pilot was very, very clever and I thought she was great and Ted Danson was great. So if it keeps going in that vein, I think it'll be a really good show. Yeah, I felt the same way, Jen. And I was surprised by that because I wasn't expecting to like an NBC comedy, but having Mike Shore <laughs> at the helm sure helps. Kristen Bell is due for a yeah. big star vehicle. She really yes, is. She is. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, it feels like the whole comedy realm has been very much dominated by cable shows and obviously the streaming shows and the pilot for another network comedy that I really liked was Speechless, which is going to be on ABC. Um, this is the show with Minnie Driver and it's about a family uh, where one of the children has cerebral palsy and he sort of uh, kind of takes up a lot of the parents attention and it's about him and their relationship and the mother played by Minnie Driver really kind of constantly fighting for him and and putting him in different schools because she's constantly getting on the nerves of all the administrators at every school she takes him to. But it's also about his siblings and how they deal with the fact that, you know, maybe he gets more attention than they do. Um, So it's some potentially heavy material, but I thought it was very funny. Um, I laughed out loud 
many times while I was watching it. Um, so that's another, you know, yeah. we say the network comedy is maybe not something that we think of as being so great anymore, but I, I see at least two bright spots on the schedule so far. Speechless is also an ABC comedy, and their comedy game has been so strong. It has. Blackish yeah. and Fresh Off the Boat and The Goldbergs. Very much and so. This seems like a perfect fit for the network. You know, it's handling something we don't usually see on television handled well, just the son having cerebral palsy, and it doesn't feel reductive at all. And right. it feels, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to see where that show goes. It's also, um, I think it could really hit a sweet spot in terms of shows that the audience wants to see, and they didn't necessarily know that they wanted to see that. Mm-hmm. Because I personally know so many parents who are dealing with issues like this, you know, not not just cerebral palsy, but Kids with cancer, kids with spectrum disorders, kids with, you know, dealing with mental illness, all kinds of things. And these are things that we very rarely see on television unless, you know, the kid shows up as a special guest star on an episode and it's all about how the regular characters relate to them and then we never see them again. Right. You know, the idea of making this the show, that's that's something that I think is overdue. Totally. Yeah. And I think to your point, Gazelle, I think ABC has really been doing a great job of really keeping the family comedy alive, but doing that in a way that provides some different perspectives on what we typically would see. And this is another great example of that. Exactly. They really have. They really have reinvented the wheel. It's it's pretty remarkable. That's great. And, you know, speaking of different perspectives, I mean, just this week, we have four great shows premiering. FX's Atlanta and Better Things, uh, Owns, Queen Sugar, and Amazon's One Mississippi. And all these shows are so different and so, so promising in their own ways. Atlanta is created by Donald Glover, and he stars as kind of an adult who's struggling in Atlanta and trying to manage his cousin's rap career. And he also has a daughter he's attempting to support. Um, Yeah, you just kind of get this view into a culture that we never see on TV because it's also so city-specific. It's so tied to uh, the culture in Atlanta and the rap scene there and what it's like to be black in America, but from a totally different perspective than well, it's we set have in usually... The sa- it's also it's set in the South. It's set in the South, right. and it is and it is not just casually. Like like so many sitcoms, they'll, they'll set things in a particular place, but you never get any sense of the regional flavor of the place where it's set. Right. It's like, it's like you know, this show takes place in, you know, Cleveland. This show takes place in Anaheim, but it's all just shot on a soundstage in L.A., and here they're shooting on location in Atlanta, and and you re- it really, really, really adds a lot. And so much of it is outdoors, and you get a sense of the changing landscapes. And, and the pace of it and the tone of it is very odd. It's very unusual. It's very unusual, and it's another one of these shows where I, I'm, I think we're really close to the point where we're going to have to retire sitcom or drama as a descriptor for these television programs. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I mean, this is a half-hour show, but aside from that, and it's funny, but I don't know if I would describe it as a situation comedy. Yeah, it no. de- it definitely has a Donald Glover touch to it because the humor is so <laughs> surreal. Uh, Isn't it great that you can say that? Though? Yeah. You know, like you know, I'm I'm at the point where I kind of if somebody says it's got a Donald Glover kind of feeling, I kind of know what they mean. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. The other thing I like about it is that I feel like a lot of times when we see shows or films that are about, you know, people in the music industry or um, the movie industry, we always see like the entourage version where they're successful or empire where it's just this really heightened sense of all this, you know, stuff going on that they've already found success. Whereas 
this is showing people really kind of struggling and putting things together from the grassroots level. And I don't think people see that as much um, on TV when you're looking at people who are trying to make music, make art, make um, films or whatever. It also gets into this, uh, this, the way in which social media has turned everyone into a kind of celebrity. That's another <laughs> oh thing God. that I thought it was really, really sharp about. Like these are people who are kind of on the fringes of, of the record industry. They're trying to get in. They're trying, you know, Paperboy is trying to get a song played on the local radio station. They have to grease the palm of the DJ to do it. And within a couple of episodes, like he's gained some kind of. It's basically local or regional fame. But already people are are jumping on that. And he's he's right. having to deal with people who are trolling him online and uh, misperceptions about who he is and what he's about, and also this fear that like, you know, the fear of success that like if I'm if I'm uh, successful, uh, how successful uh, do will I become as a rapper where I have to give up my drug dealing business, which is where my money's actually <laughs> coming from? Like this is an actual concern for the guy. Yeah, and it's right. all very mundane. The way it's portrayed is very mundane. And then we usually, you know, music managers, we usually think of them as these, you know, super slick people making deals. And then you have Donald Glover, who's essentially functioning as his manager, like just begging for for the person at whatever fast food restaurant he's he's uh, patronizing to give him a happy meal because it's going to be cheaper. That's that's great. That's great. Like, where's your kid? Where's your kid? (laughs) I don't have to have a kid to have a kid's meal. That's great. I think the way the show also handles gun culture is super interesting. It. Mm -hmm. Films, guns kind of casually laying around, people pointing guns at each other, but not in this heightened way where there's a shootout about to happen, although that does happen. But you kind of just see how embedded it is in the culture yeah. in this way that you don't usually see guns treated with this kind of casualness that is, gives it this really kind of scary feeling when you're watching it. Well, yeah, that, but also not I feel even... like that's also regionally specific too. Like, yeah, like I mean, definitely. you know, like I'm, I, I've never spent much time in Georgia, but I grew up in Texas and like guns are out in Texas. Right. Like guns are, are lying around. A lot of houses have them. You see them hanging on the wall. Sometimes you know where they're stored. Sometimes people carry them and it's just like part of life. Totally. There. It's just omnipresent. Yeah. Yeah. And FX's other show that they're premiering next week is Better Things, and that is Pamela Adlon's show, and you might know her from Louis. And where where she played (laughs) Pamela. Where she played Pamela, and she also, you know, wrote many episodes as well. She's been a co-writer, a co-producer, co-everything. She's probably, I would say, Louis C.K.'s most important collaborator. Yeah, and he he also co-created this show with her. And he directed the pilot, yeah. He directed the pilot, and... You know, you here here again. You get a completely different perspective. You you see an older woman kind of navigating Hollywood while raising three children, and I feel like when I was watching it, I really have never seen the story told before, not in this way. No, and often, like occasionally, you'll see in stories about people trying to make it in show business, you might see a secondary character who has kids who's having to deal with that. So you see a piece of that in glimpses, but you, but again, not at the center of the show. Right. And it's funny because you know we're we're talking about two FX shows. They're both half-hour uh, shows that, at uh, another time, would have been casually described as comedies, but they don't really feel like sitcoms in the way that, say, the mm-hmm. ABC sitcoms do. They feel like little, you know, 22 minutes plus commercials um, movies. They're like featurettes almost. And and uh, and both of them put characters at the center who would often be supporting characters in other people's stories. Yes. And, and, and they feel like of a piece to me somehow. There are some scenes on the show that I really like and other ones where I'm take it or leave it. So I haven't quite, it's not like 
I you haven't I think formulated I haven't, your take yet. Exactly. But there's one scene in the pilot where Constance Zimmer and Julie Bowen and Pamela Adlon are all auditioning for the same role that I is just amazing because it really gets at what it's like to be such an amazing actress. These are all amazing actresses. Yeah. And to be kind of competing against each other and going for this kind of not that interesting part, but like, (laughs) and just, I would just watch a show all about that. Just with these people kind of in the auditioning world. That was terrific. And I I gotta, I gotta confess that show, this show had me from, from, from frame one. How how does it feel to you as someone who's raising kids who are. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think anybody who's a single parent is going to, is going to love this show. I just think uh, flat out, I can't imagine there's somebody who's in that situation. Who's not going to relate. And like from the very beginning, like she's sitting at a shopping mall on a bench with her with her daughter, who I guess is about five, and her daughter is whining and crying and whining and crying, and there's another woman sitting on the bench staring at them in a judgmental way, and finally Pamela turns to this woman and says, do you want to buy her the earrings? And I practically want, I wanted to stand up and cheer. <laughs> you know, like I've been in versions of that situation so many times myself as a, as a dad, and uh, it's just great. It's just great to see that. Yeah, and just the way it um, portrays how teens talk, too. I feel That's true. Really, really good. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm really curious to see where that show goes. Um, also this week, we have Queen Sugar, which is an Oprah, Ava DuVernay production. And it tells the story of three siblings who are somewhat estranged, who come together in Louisiana um, to handle their father's estate. And... You know, it's just kind of beautiful to watch. It really takes its time with each of these characters as well. But just watching it felt like such a pleasure. And there's this kind of haunting feel to it that I don't feel like I really see on television. I think here's another show with a predominantly all-black cast. And you have a completely different type of story. And you completely different types of characters and it just shows how tv is kind of growing and as we make space for these different types of stories it's just i don't know i i just think this isn't it's unusual to have these two shows premiering in the same week you know it's a great companion to greenleaf which is also an oprah production and and both of these shows queen sugar and greenleaf i think owe quite a bit to certain classics of of african-american independent cinema in the 90s Mm -hmm. like uh Daughters of the Dust and Eve's Bayou and films like that. Mm, yeah. And if you were a fan of Hannibal, you also might be excited to see the return of Rutina Wesley to television, who you would, you may recognize as Reba from Hannibal. She plays the Red Dragon's blind girlfriend. She's just incredible. Yeah, she's tremendous. Yeah. The other show that yeah, I've only seen the pilot of so far, um, and it's Tig Notaro's Amazon show, One Mississippi. Um, and you know, this is kind of the comedy auteur model of a comedian doing kind of a semi autobiographical show, um, that deals heavily with death and a look at her own struggle with breast cancer. It's, it's a little bit similar to an Atlanta in that they both have kind of a surreal sense of humor about them. But I think one Mississippi sense of humor is even more out there. It feels a little bit more like a comedy to me, even though the material it's dealing with is so dark. So yeah, this is a this is a great week for television, and the fall is just starting. It is, yeah, yeah. And there's 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 more to come. There's more to come. I'm very excited about Luke Cage. Oh yeah, 
Um, have you have you seen any of that yet? Not yet. Um, but uh, I think that Netflix's Marvel series, uh, they, they're not perfect by any stretch, but I, but I appreciate the fact that they're trying to do something different from the Marvel films. Mm-hmm. That they seem smaller, they're darker, they're more clearly adult, the way that they're told. And I just think the stories are more sophisticated. The, like, the way the story is told, there's more happening. I'm also excited about uh, Pitch, which mm-hmm. I watched the pilot for that. This is a series that's going to be on Fox. Um, it's premiering later on in September. It's about the first female Major League Baseball player to actually rise up and play for the San Diego Padres. And it's being made in collaboration with Major League Baseball. So they've actually shot the pilot at Petco Park. They're actually calling the Padres the Padres. Uh, so that gives it uh, you know, a certain auth- authenticity. But uh, there's some things in the pilot that were a little bit hokey, but I didn't feel like, you know, I didn't get the sense of Major League Baseball censoring them in any way. Um, the kind of sexism that this woman would likely face was was very much portrayed. Uh, and I just think that's such an interesting idea for a show. Again, only watching one episode, it's hard to say how it'll be in the long run. But um, I also like the fact that it's really looking at it. I feel like a lot of shows about sports uh, – aren't really about how hard it is to actually play the sport. <laughs> They're about a lot yeah. of other tangential things. And I felt like you got that from the show, this, this, the real struggle, the work, uh, the discipline involved uh, in a way that sometimes we don't see. Uh, I know they're already trying to promote it. It's not just about baseball so that other people who don't love baseball will watch it. But I like the fact that it's about baseball. I think it should be. I think when I think when a show or a movie um, articulates what exactly it means to do a particular job, then anybody can relate to it, even if they've never done that job. That's I think right. that's that, and and sports films strangely are among the best at at communicating that. Like I've you know I've I, you can't trust me to like toss a piece of paper into a wastebasket that three that's three feet away, let alone like mm-hmm. play you know <laughs> play play for the NBA. But you know I I feel like when I watch a really good sports film, I I get it. Like, you know, boxing films, football films, like the ones that are about the work are the ones that I think anybody can relate to and appreciate. And you see people getting better. You see people improving. Mm -hmm. You see Mm -hmm. people dealing with their, you know, their emotional or biographical issues that get in the way of their performance. And all of this stuff is relatable. Yeah, and I haven't watched Pitch yet, but I've heard that it ends on a twist. The pilot. It does. And it does indeed. That may remind <laughs> you of another show, and I, that's all I'll say about what it is. <laughs> There's also another show this fall that's, uh, who's which the pilot also ends on a twist, and they're both created by the same guy, Dan Fogelman. And mm-hmm. this one is This Is Us, and it stars Milo Ventimiglia and Mandy Moore and Sterling K. Brown and... You know, I think if you were a fan of Parenthood, it, I was just it might say, be... The, the, it totally, totally <laughs> it looks. It's a little... Based on... The pilot was a little overly sentimental to me. Yeah. And, and I think that is to be expected with a show like this. It's like big family drama. Um, but, yeah. I mean, I, I could see it becoming that level of show. And you can tell that's how they're positioning it. They promoted it so heavily during the Olympics. Um yeah, you can tell that's what they're going for. Yeah, I associated that show with the Olympics. That's how, that's how often they were promoting it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a few other shows I'm really excited about. One of them is Insecure, and that has been in the works for a really long time at HBO. It's co-created by Issa Rae and Larry Wilmore, but it's based on Issa Rae's YouTube series, The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. And that series if you haven't watched it 
you should just go online and it's watch great. that. It's, it's great. The first two seasons are up. It's the the episodes are really short. You'll you'll blow through it in a day. And the HBO show isn't isn't a continuation of that, but it still gives you a real sense of this, that aesthetic of the HBO series, which kind of keeps that being a young black woman navigating work and having to deal with these kind of white coworkers who are a little clueless when it comes to race and dating and you know it 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 keeps kind of the spirit of of the web series and what i really liked is they also gave her a new best friend character which i was really sad about cuz i loved her best friend in the web series <laughs> who yeah. but but this new one is like got one of the best stories which i think sometimes you it's the type of role that could easily be overlooked but her story is just one of the more interesting narratives about what it's like to date as a black woman and it's just go watch awkward black girl online and hbo is also developing another web series high maintenance and that one is much more purely just taking what the web series was and transferring it to television they really didn't change much about the show each episode functions as two episodes basically of the web series where you have two stories being told and it almost feels like you're just watching short films on television which i i think is great to kind of bring attention to that to that yeah. genre of t- storytelling yeah 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 i think that's I, I think that increasingly that's what that's what um comedy has become yeah i think and it also what i really liked about what they've done it's only a six episode season and HBO's airing it on Friday nights, but probably because, I don't know, maybe that's when people are getting high and saying it. Prime time. I think it's a very astute programming decision. Yeah, personally. which, by the way, if, if, you, if you're not familiar with the web series, this show follows a weed delivery guy in New York um, traveling from, you know, making different deliveries throughout the city. And that brings him into the lives of these other characters. And he's basically, it's like, it's like a Robert Altman movie, except, you know, instead of the sound truck in Nashville getting us from scene to scene, we have a weed dealer. Yes. It's really not about him. (laughs) (laughs) And the, the HBO series, I really like that they didn't make it about him, that he's still just kind of the vehicle that takes us from story to story. Uh, there's an entire episode from the perspective of a dog. It is so good. I mean, they, they really chose their stories super consciously, it seems, to tell a diversity of perspectives. You have one told about a Muslim family. You have another about a relationship between a gay man and his straight female girlfriend and how complicated that type of relationship can be. You have a Chinese couple living in Chinatown. It's just... You know, you you get you get stories that you don't get otherwise, and all in one TV show, which is yeah, it's it's a beautiful little series, I think. One of the more interesting developments that I've seen is um, we talked a little bit about this idea of um, the half-hour show in particular is kind of bringing short filmmaking to TV, and I think Louis I think Louis C.K. sort of helped to break ground for that in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Um, a lot of those episodes would actually be two episodes, you know, too many episodes. Um, but it's also, I also see a lot of just sort of independent filmmaking tendencies coming to TV, and it makes a lot more sense on television because 
you have, if you get the right format, there you have the room to experiment, and also the stakes are lower, the budgets are a little lower. Like, you know, we're not talking like uh, a budget like, uh, you know, Westworld or even something like uh, The Blacklist, you know? Like, it's mm-hmm. like, in a lot of cases, a show like Atlanta, like half of the show will be people hanging out in parking lots, smoking weed and talking. Right. You know, so it's not mm-hmm. like it's not like you're burning money when you do a show like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, sh- so we're I think we're going to see more and more independent filmmakers who have essentially been shut out of feature film distribution. Like there's still a lot of super low budget independent films being made, but increasingly a lot of them are only being seen by the friends and family of the people who made the movie. Yeah. And like right. at a handful of film festivals, often not even major ones. And like the, the sheer number of micro budget indie films that are set in reality and that are kind of based on the filmmaker's own life is just staggering. And um, television, I think, is increasingly serving as a home for for people like that. And Joe Swanberg's got a show now. Joe Swanberg, who, yeah, right. you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with him, if you if you follow independent filmmaking at all, you know that this is a guy who makes Steve, Steven Soderbergh look unproductive. <laughs> like, I, I'm not kidding. Like, there's there have been periods where he's been releasing two or more films, feature films a year, and doing a web series, and it's just unbelievable how productive this guy is. And he's been developing his voice, and I like his more recent films better than his earlier ones, but... Um, he did a, a Netflix series that's premiering this fall called Easy. Easy. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, he's kind of known as a mumblecore type of... Yeah, I think he hates that word <laughs> yeah. now, but yeah. yeah that's his, pretty much that's his is. deal. He did Drinking Buddies and Happy Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, the show is an anthology series where each episode is a different story. So this is very much in line with what you were saying, Matt. And, you know, Orlando Bloom, Mark Maron, Aya Cash, Hannibal Barris. These are all people who have their own stories in various episodes. It feels kind of like those omnibus films like New York I Love You, Paris I yes. Love You and New York Stories. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've I've watched the first couple and they didn't quite do it for me, but you know, I think it might be one of those things where you like some of the stories more than others. You know, yeah, I agree with you about that. But I also think one of the wonderful things about television, especially now in the streaming age, is, you know, yes, there's so much TV that no no person can watch all of it. But I think now that we're seeing more TV shows adopt an, an anthology or semi-anthology or sort of short film collection kind of model, that mm-hmm. doesn't matter as much. You know, that you could, like, conceivably sample two or three episodes of a show like that. And, right. And get the flavor of it, and, and you, you're you not going to be lost. It's not like you're going to be going, who the hell are these people? What's going on? You can come in whenever you want. It's a, yeah, sure. come in for the Orlando Bloom episode. That's right. What you want. And I'm sure a lot of people will. <laughs> yeah. What, uh, what about Fleabag? Well, so Fleabag is created, written, and starring Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It's a British import that's premiering on Amazon and I really liked it. It like it, you know, follows a this woman's this young woman's work life and dating. And she, from what I've read from when it premiered in the UK, she's gotten a lot of comparisons to Lena Dunham and Bridget Jones and that, those types of people and characters. But I I really felt her sense of humor was so original on this show. And you know, I, it, t- it took me a little bit to get into it because she talks to the camera. And that can feel a little bit annoying at first. Right. But there's also this kind of strain of grief and sadness that comes out later in the series that just makes it a more compelling show, I think. And it's also just really funny. So I mm-hmm. 
I think it could be it's Amazon's next catastrophe type, you know, show that charms people this side of the pond. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Yeah. I'm so one of the wild cards, I guess. I mean, in the sense that nobody's really talking about it that much is uh, the Cinemax show Quarry. Oh, right. Which I was not interested in. It's about a, originally not interested in, but it's set in 1972, and it's about a Vietnam veteran who basically becomes involved in, like, the criminal underworld, you know, and uh, has all these adventures. But uh, but then I found out that it's um, two of the uh, producers who worked on um, Rectify, uh, Graham Gordy and Michael D. Fuller. And, like, once I, once I knew that, all of a sudden I... I was interested. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a Cinemax show. That's a Cinemax yeah. show and yeah, and I and I love I love period shows. I love serious period shows where like the time and place are actually important to the show and they inform what happens in the show and the construction of the psychology of the characters and I can't imagine that this is not going to be a show like that. Yeah. You know, given who's involved. Probably one of the biggest shows premiering this fall is going to come close closer to the holidays, uh Thanksgiving week actually, Gilmore Girls. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what everyone's going to be doing the Friday after Thanksgiving. Uh, whoever but, chose that uh, as a release date deserves a raise. Seriously, it's such yeah. a genius idea, <laughs> except for There's us. There's nothing I want to do more than eat leftover stuffing while watching Gilmore Girls. Like, those two things go hand in hand. That's all that's, all that's going to be happening in parts of the United States <laughs> on, on during the, the next few days after the release. And I know, you know, I think a lot of, like, sisters watch that show together, or moms and daughters, and... People go home for for the Thanksgiving holiday. It's it's perfect. Yeah, and, and counter programming for football, you don't get any better than that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Coming up, Matt will talk to Ava DuVernay about Queen Sugar. This is going to be like in, uh, do you ever see Big Night? Yeah. You remember when <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, what, what? Stanley Tucci goes to yeah. talk to Ian Holm and Ian Holm has the lamp on his desk and like he doesn't <laughs> yes. know like what's the protocol? Yes. Am I supposed to look around the lamp yes. or yes. am I going to get in trouble if yes. I do that? Or? Yes. Well, I haven't thought about that scene in a long time. That was a good movie. That one's a good one. It was like his first, was that his, like his first, I feel like that's the first time I was aware of him. Of who? Stanley, Stanley Tucci? Tucci? Yeah, I think so too. So Certainly is a leading man. Yeah. Like, I subsequently went back and was like, oh, he's been in four million things. Right, right. But but he never popped before that. Yeah. This is a restaurant, not a fucking school. Right. It's kind of <laughs> like when you get those great character actors like David Strathairn. Oh, God, he's the best. You know, or Richard Jenkins. Like, they've been there, but you never, they never got a chance to. And the first they do, time I, they kill it. Yes. The first time I noticed David Strathairn was in uh, Matewan. He's the sheriff in Matewan. Oh, and the Pinkertons tell him like, "Here's what you got to do." It's huh. a, you know, they're ordering, trying to order him uh. around, and he goes, and he looks the guy in the eye and he goes, "I wouldn't piss on you if your heart was on fire." <laughs> it was like that's one of the greatest put downs I've ever heard. Your heart was on fire. <laughs> that's not bad. Who wrote that? John Sales. Ah, Sales. There you go. Ah, I love him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are we good to go? Film events. Okay. Okay. Quick. All right. So we are concentrating on the directing. Okay. The directing of the show. So um, it's uh, so it's not as if you're like lacking for feature film work these days. Uh-huh. TV is a longer commitment. It's yeah. you know it's like adopting a kid almost. Yeah. Why it television? Because it's a golden era of television. I want it in. I really, really did. I, I really can directly trace it to uh, Carrie Fukunaga and True Detective. I said, 
what? First of all, you directed every episode. Secondly, it's badass. The f- just I, I, I saw that, and then it's um, Soderbergh goes and does the Nick. Yeah. And I just like I loved that first season so much, and that was that's when I became very aware of. You know, Fincher had already done House of Cards, but it wasn't. Um, you know, the full, it was, I think it was like the pilot. Or, he did the you know. pilot and he set the style, I think. Yeah, set the style. And, and that's something that we'd seen for a while, but it seemed like maybe four years ago or so it turned into like auteurs, like, you know, really coming in and putting their full stamp on a series beyond pilot, beyond setting the stage, like staying with it. And I just thought that was fascinating to tell the 13-hour story, the eight-hour story, you know? Right. So I, I wanted to try it. And I noticed as I was watching the the first few episodes, it said Ava DuVernay, at the end of the first, at the pilot, mm-hmm. and then at the beginning, and then the second one, same name. It was like, you know, and I thought like, oh, she's not just doing one. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> like, that means she must really like this. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I show ran. I mean, I, it, was, it was, you know, picking every director, you know, all the casting decisions throughout all the episodes, you know, you know, costume, prepping that stuff. Because when you're going so fast, the episodic directors aren't able to. They're, they're in there for seven days, so some of it has to be done in advance. And so, um, so yeah, editorial, final cut on every single thing that we did. Um, you know, it, it's fast. It's much different than, than filmmaking. Even though I could, you know, I've made films where I've shot for 12 days, 15 days, the early indie stuff, early being five years ago. Um, <laughs> the, um, the, the, this pace is nuts if you approaching it as a director. I talked to Shonda Rhimes about it and I said, how do you do this, you know, producerially and writing-wise, churning this thing out? Ten years she's been doing it, multiple Series, yeah, like three, three at one time. Yeah, at one point. I think the difference why I was so exhausted. I mean, of course, she's Superwoman, but it's because I was trying to do it directorially, mm-hmm. and the director's eye and all of the details. It, it was, it was nuts. Well, speaking yeah. of, speaking <laughs> of the, speaking of the director's eye, uh, here's a question that I get from readers a lot. And I sort of feel like I know in general what to tell them, but since I have you here, maybe you can get a little more specific. How does a show maintain a consistent style over a period of time when there's so many directors? Uh, it's 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 this, this is part of my was my big concern with the first season, and that's why I think I probably held it even more tightly than um, I needed to because I was afraid of kind of that, you know, uh, that, that little. Uh, it, it kind of going off the rails a little bit and not being consistently what I set when I started out. Now, when I look at all of the episodes, it, it's changed, um, but not not in a bad way. You, when you have, you know, it's like you know making a, a sculpture or you're a potter and you're making a piece and it's just your hands and what it would be like if there were 30 hands on it. How do you hmm. keep the same form if everyone's putting their hands on it? It may not be exactly the same thing, but it doesn't mean it's bad. Right. And so that was something that I that I had to learn and 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 having other directors kind of come in. On Miami Vice, there's a, a legendary um, anecdote about how Michael Mann issued this edict: no earth tones for the first two seasons. <laughs> and I know that other shows have particular, particular, just sort of general guidelines. Yeah, general rules. guidelines. Do you have anything? Yeah, like yeah. That? I hate inserts. I hate them. Inserts meaning Insert tight close-ups of, of objects yeah, and things. Like, Someone goes to pick up the phone, then I don't need another shot of the hand picking up the phone. Like, I'm good. I saw in the wide. 
yeah, it's a phone. Yeah, iPhone, blue right. case. I got you. I just, I just don't like it. It's my own thing. So yeah, like, but but things like that. And but but I think the main thing in terms of the look is that keeps the steady hand is the cinematographer. So the DP knows what the look is like, knows what the framing is. Mm-hmm. The editors are all knowing what the editorial rhythm is. Um, and so with a, a director or an actor is doing something that might, might be outside of it. Um, it's all good because they'll bring their sensibility to a piece that has already an established aesthetic. The, sh- the, the show is filmed on location in Louisiana, yeah. right? How does that affect your the look of the show, the feel of the show, when you're actually shooting in the place where something is said as opposed to faking it somewhere sure, else? Sure, sure. Um, I mean, I, I was really aware of not wanting to kind of do New Orleans, um, like New Orleans, you know, one word that comes to mind is porn. Um, because <laughs> Red Shoe Diaries, New Orleans. Right. You know, it's just something about it's the city has so been photographed so much. Yeah. Um, you know, you think of New Orleans, you're thinking the same tropes, Bourbon Street, French Quarter, now Katrina, you know, and it's like, you know, more than that. You may, you know, cotton fields, I mean, um, sugar fields are a little more obscure, but certainly when we get into the city, I just, gosh, whenever we were. I, I did not treat the city as character. Like, that's the thing that filmmakers say. It's like, the city was a character. <laughs> no, the city was not a character. Our characters lived there. But I did not want to kind of lean into it and kind of do that whole show and tell of New Orleans. It's a, it's a fabric to it that just exists that I don't have to... Um, the city is so distinct that you do not have to overcorrect and kind of show it off because it just is in the pores. You know, mm-hmm, when, like, mm-hmm. you drink too much... I don't drink, but people who drink too much and they come home at night. I'm, maybe I'm telling, telling to they come home at night and or and you're like, you've been drinking. And they're like, no, I haven't. It's like, yes, it's like you're sweating whatever it you is. drank or, the, you know, it's like smoke. It sticks to it. That's New Orleans. Is this an analogy? Your, no, because your, my, your view, your, your listeners are like, what the hell? My, my brother went to college at Tulane. OK. And when I went to, went to visit him there, I felt like I was swimming through tomato soup. <laughs> I mean, that's how human it was. It was unreal. I've never experienced that in my life. The only thing that comes close is Houston. It's yeah, no, that's that's you know, but hardcore. yeah, but the, but the show, the show has that. It does have that quality to it. There's yeah. something about the light. Yeah, and you don't, don't have to it force is, it. But, yeah. You don't have to force it. It's yeah. there. It's there. Speaking of the lighting, um, one thing I've noticed on a lot of shows that are uh, directed or produced by white filmmakers mm-hmm. is a lot of times the. Actors of color are not properly lit. Right. They're too dark. There's not enough light on them. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in charge here. What do you do to make sure that doesn't happen? Is light it just the mo- black people properly? It's just more like it's just more light? Is that is as simple no, as it's that? A, I mean, it's, this, it's, it's, this, is, this is a, a historical kind of thing. You know, this is a, a long-standing thing. Usually you have two people in a scene, and, you know, we know the history of cinema. The hero, the star of the scene is most likely going to be the white guy. Right, and the other guy is his friend who works at the thing or carrying the bag or whatever. You're not going to light for that guy. You're going to light for the star. And so historically, you've had really muddy, really kind of um, unforgiving, really unintentional images of black people that are you know throughout the history of cinema. So I learned a lot from Bradford Young and Arthur Jaffa and Malik Sayyid and the great black cinematographers about, you know, how to actually light our skin in a way that's it's just intentional. Anyone yeah. can do it if you are favoring the darker skin tone. Right. Um, but that doesn't happen only because of the context by which most of these scenes and, and films have happened for so long. The black character, the character of color is usually the 
the lesser of the two characters in terms of prominence. What, what sort of things can you do as a filmmaker with production design and costumes that will make actors of color pop more, be more beautiful, be more interesting on screen? Um, yeah, gosh, there's, 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 there's lots of tricks. I think the main thing is um, with, with lighting characters of color is there's just such a variance in, ten, in skin tone. Right. You know, I mean, there are, there are characters that we shot in Queen Sugar that, that their skin looks like yours. You know what I mean? And then you see Rutina Wesley or Kofi Sirbo, you know, Nigerian. Right. You know, and it's just like, whoa, uh, uh, these are two characters. I need to favor both. How do I like for both? And you do exactly that. You like each one as if they're the hero of the story. Mm-hmm. And um, it takes a little bit longer, and everyone doesn't know how to do it. Um, it's not just putting light on. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not impossible for people to learn. Our Latino cinematographer, Antonio Cavace, who's really extraordinary. I first saw his work. Um, I remember him from he shot Todd Field's films, um, Little Children and... Uh, in the Bedroom. In the Bedroom. Oof. Holy crap. Holy crap. Yeah. And I always remembered his name. And so I wanted to have a cinematographer who'd never shot television, who had more of a cinematic eye, and bring that to our television show. And he agreed. And so he was very intentional with the brown skin tones. How much leeway do the actors have to move about in the frame when they're acting in a scene? Do you, blo- do you block them out? Like, you go here, you say this, you go there, you say that. Or do they have the freedom to move in some unexpected way? Wow, this is, that is really a great, for? this is a directing uh, uh, conversation. Well, I told you. How cool. Nobody, you know what, I just have to thank you for this. Because being a black woman director, I very rarely, I can, ima- I can count on one hand, and I wouldn't be a full hand, the conversations that I've had about craft. Um, because it's always about diversity, about the first this, the first that. No one's asking me about blocking scenes or rehearsal. So thank you. Oh, well, hey, it's my I pleasure. I really appreciate it. But this it. is like one of my pet hobby horses is like I'm, I'm kind of on like a critical jihad against shows that cut all the time. Yeah, well, we and sure don't. No, you don't. And that was another right. thing I wanted to ask you about yeah. was, you know, you mentioned you were talking about the, the camera distance. You know, the role that camera distance yeah. plays. And you've actually got a, you've got a scene. Let me see if I can remember this. It's the scene where... Um, yeah, when uh, the grandfather, Glenn Terman's character, goes to pick up Blue yes. from school. Yeah. And you let you let most of that play out in a wide shot. Yeah. And then you've got the scene with um, Ralph Angel mm-hmm. and his and his estranged wife. Mm-hmm. When he gets out of the pickup truck to confront her, that's also in a wide yeah. shot. Most shows, most movies wouldn't do that. They mm-hmm. wouldn't stay that far back from people at a moment of extreme emotion. Mm-hmm. Like one, one positive, one negative. Mm-hmm. They would go right into their face. Mm-hmm. Why don't you go right into their face? Because the story is so – great question. Thank you. The story is so emotional. The whole story is quite emotional that I really had to calibrate the time. You know, you have to calibrate the close-ups. So there are some scenes, as, as the one where the, the, the grandfather – the son, Kof, uh, Ralph Angel, and his son, Blue, are all in the um, the hospital bed, hospital room. Yes. That's all mediums and extreme close-up. ECU, macro, like a tight, you can't even see a chin and a forehead. Your mm-hmm. eyebrow to, to the bottom lip um, on some of that stuff. I know that's coming, so I can't keep, you know what I mean? It's just mm-hmm. a calibration of it. But also, you know, that scene that you talk about in the parking lot is about distance, you know what I mean? It's about emotional these two distance. emotional distance. Um, and actually, he's moving away from her. He's trying to get away from her. She's chasing him across that parking lot. Right. And so he when, walks out of the building, and she follows him all the way out to his truck. Yeah. And, um, and so literally, it's a bit of a chase scene. Uh, the times that he has to turn back, and, you know, we had to really find the moments where he would turn back, you know. And why do you turn around here? You can't just do it unmotivated. You would keep walking to the truck. So we had to figure out the 
pieces why he would turn. Yeah. He found a really nice thing. Kofi Sirbo, such a great young actor, um, he, you know, where he he turns just to hear her out so he could say a mean thing to her. Right. Right. He turns and says, yeah, tell me. And she says, I got the job. And he's like, I don't care what you do. Right? Yeah. Bam. Bam. You know, finding those reasons to make the moves. Right. And so, anyway, no. So, first of all, we were in a huge parking lot, and we just want to show the distance between them and how it kept. she kept closing in on him, and he kept widening the gap. That was the idea there. There's a, there's a saying that I like to quote that, that um, a, show, a, a, show, a great show or a great movie teaches you how to watch it. Mm. Like you get used to the like the way you get used to the language in a book or something, yeah. and and it's interesting when you feel like you've gotten used to the language of a show, and that it does something that seems like oh that was out of character. Mm. And one example of that is um, Ralph Angel with Blue at Blue's birthday party. There's oh, a shot yeah. where he's look he looks I right know. into the camera, and then the boy looks right I into know. the camera. Why did you that, that that hadn't happened yet? And no. I don't think you did it after that. And it doesn't happen again in the whole series. Why did you do because that? Because it was there. Yeah. And you have to be brave enough to say, I'm going to shoot it. And then you know, I always say, you know what? You it's see, like first person. It was a break. You're right. Uh, this is such a great conversation. It, it was a break. And I said, I'm going to shoot it. I don't even know if I'll use it. But I saw it. I, I saw it lined up. And I said, gosh, this does something to me emotionally to see him look, at, you know, to be that center frame right down the barrel. And even though it's not our visual language, it's very moving to me when I cut it in. And even though it's it's nothing like anything else we do, it says so much about what this boy means to him and uh, and what he means to what, what the what the what the father means to the boy. And I feel like it really does something to the scene, which I think is a big jewel of this episode, one that's close to my heart in the hospital room. Yeah, because it's this binding binding together of father and son, and so that happens in a really unexpected way. Uh, you, by you, changing those frames, you have you have a lot of people. You have a lot of some of these wider shots where you have a lot of people in the frame. It gives you this idea that they're all part of a they're all part of a. a, a uh, I'm losing my nouns. I'm sorry, yeah. but like a there's a continuity. Yes, it's like this is all part of the same family, the same circle, yeah. the same intimate circle, and they're mm. all in the same shot. Mm. And, yeah. and when you do something like that birthday party shot, like mm. that's a room full of people. That's room full of people. But at that moment, suddenly it's just the father and the son. Everyone else falls away. Right. And that was another that, – that shot works so well. But it's hard. I'm, I'm working on A Wrinkle in Time right now. I like know. every scene has six people in it. Every scene, Matt, has six people in it. I'm like, What? I mean, just really directorially. I'm 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 in previs. I'm I'm in the I'm in the construction, modeling the different worlds, and and with with the stuntmen. And and sometimes my mind just goes to there's six people in this thing, like that. Th- this camera movement and where like the blocking is going to be a real fantastic challenge. Uh huh. Um, because you know, I mean, I've done the dinner table table scenes. I've done crowd scenes. I've done marches. I've done. I mean, I've done some cra- some scenes with a lot of people in it. But six. I mean, ninety percent of the movie, there's six people standing around. Is it true? I always hear directors say this. Is it true that the hardest thing to shoot is a dinner table scene with a lot of people around a table? I find it easy. Really? Well, because you just they're all on a certain axis, and you can yeah. get it done. You just yeah, I find it easy. I take it, I do it in pieces. Yeah. People that are trying to do like do too much. Yeah. Get out of that scene because it, it can bury you. It take all day to get a dinner scene done. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is hard if you make it hard, but I enjoy them. How much of your? <laughs> how many of your decisions visually are driven by what the actors are doing? 
Um, uh, with their faces, with their bodies? Quite a bit. Like, you know, the, the scene that you're talking about, the center frame shot, I just saw it. It felt like it was happening in the moment. But to answer the, that along with your other question is how much do do are the actors allowed to move in the frame? Um, I... Uh, I I have an idea about what will work, and then you know I'll usually do a blocking rehearsal where I'll hear what they say. Um, now that's sometimes with actors, I, I found early on in my in my work, um, don't just let them in the room and say, "Hey, what do you think?" Because ooh, no, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it because what they think is going to be like. I think I turn to the camera here, and then the camera follows me here, and then the, you know what I mean or. <laughs> I think we need to move this couch. It's like, so I will usually start it with, I'm thinking it starts in this area and it ends here. Do we want to talk about how, you know, it'll be a piece. And then as they start moving around the room, it's like, oh, no, this is a better idea. Oh, no, let's go back. But I always go into a blocking rehearsal with an anchor, a blocking plan. And sometimes they'll step into the room and they'll be in costume and you're just in the space and you're like, that sucks. That's not going to work. Let's think of something new. Yeah. So It seems to me. And if I'm wrong, I'm sure you'll tell me that this show has a lot in common with your first two features, mm-hmm. like the feel of it, not just thematically, mm-hmm. like some of the issues that come up, like, mm-hmm. you know, the loss of a loss of, a you know, the matriarch mm-hmm. or the patriarch, mm-hmm. you know, or a guy adjusting to life after, you know, doing time, mm-hmm. that stuff, mm-hmm. but also the the spareness of it. Mm-hmm. The intimacy of mm-hmm. it, like you're not like this is not like a big show. No, this is a small show. Yeah, I mean emotionally, but yeah. like it's like you got you got like a dozen characters. You don't got you don't got eighty. That's right. So that's right. I, and I loved it. I love going back to that kind of storytelling. I, I um, because you know doing a Wrinkle in Time or doing Selma or doing you know a couple of the other big pilots and things that I've done. It's like I found myself uh, longing for. The indie spirit you know, when just getting a few actors on a really, you know, a set that's just a house. You know, they say indie films are just people talking in rooms. Um, I love people talking in rooms. Like, <laughs> I love people talking in rooms. And so I, I wanted to have people talking about really great stuff in rooms. And yeah, it is, it is really uh, a filmmaking that's similar to what I did before. Um, I was interrogating for myself how much that filmmaking style has changed now that I've done other things. Hmm. Like, I feel like I was a little, you know, maybe braver uh, earlier. How? In what way? I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) And so, you know, it's like, let's try it. I don't know. And I get in the editing room and I find, like, really interesting things. Um, Now I know how to manage my time. I know how to get more material, Mm -hmm. which allows me to go into the editing room and put something together. But I don't know if the material is as, uh, I don't know, doesn't have maybe... For me, as much of the edge as I feel like I had earlier on. A, a couple of little quick, really okay. fun, really geeky speed, questions. Speed okay. round. I'll, an- I'll answer faster. Okay, so you got a lot of close-ups in the show that mm. are like this. Oh, my gosh, he's showing me. Oh, my gosh, I love this interview. So there, there, you've got like a character's head is in the frame. Yeah. They're on the extreme left or the extreme right-hand yeah, side yeah. of the frame. Sometimes they're looking at the, you know, sometimes yeah. they're looking off screen. In yeah. the back of their head, there's yeah. like two-thirds of yeah. negative space. Yeah. There's a lot of that kind of thing. Yeah, I love it. You just like the way it looks? Uh, no. Because, what does it do? Well, when you short sight them, it, it makes this this person now feels enclosed in prison. Right. Right? They're facing the wall. So whatever they're saying, I usually use that when there's something that I want them to feel um, trapped or I want them to feel more um, less free in whatever they're talking about. Well, and you also do a lot of things where you got close-ups of people where there's nothing in the frame 
except their face. Oh, I do that a lot. Yeah, and, why uh, do you do that? Where there's not like pictures, mirrors, bric-a-brac, windows, stuff right. like that. Right. It's almost like they're a painting. Yeah. What's that about? Well, because the terrain of the face is the most, most you know, dynamic thing you can point the camera at to me. You know, I mean, I love production design and bells and whistles, and I, I love a techno grain as much as the next gal. But, you know, a great actor's face, what else, what else should we be looking at? That's a perfectly good place to end. Okay, cool. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hey, absolutely. This is really fun. I can't believe you showed me the That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our director of production and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mami and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellafin. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening. Primo, let me ask you something. What do you think if we take risotto off the menu? Primo. What do you think about that, huh? Take risotto off the menu. I'm sorry. What did you say? Forget it. No, no, no. I know you. What you say? Tell me what you say. Well, it's just that risotto costs us a lot, and. It takes you a long time to make. I mean, you have to work so hard to make, you know. And then we have to charge more. So I think take it away. Sure. Good. Really? Yeah, that's good. Oh, yeah. Grazie. Okay. Mm. Maybe instead... Uh, we could put... Yes, tell me, tell me. Well, uh, I was thinking... Um, mm, what... What do they call it? You know, is... Come si dice? Manicotti? No. Is... Uh, a hot dog? Ha, ha, hot dog? Hot dog! Yeah. Hot dogs. Yeah. Uh, I think people would like that. Those... You give people time, they learn. Well, I don't have time for them to learn. This is a restaurant, not a fucking school.